Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. There is a new app called Stir, and it's a dating app for single parents. Because dating as a single parent is just trickier than when you're not trying to explain to someone your difficult schedule because kids are a big part of your life. And it's just not as easy meeting single people who understand that. And so Stir is the number one dating app designed for single parents. Most single parents are looking to just have fun and meet new people without any pressure or judgment. But it's really hard to do that if you're not meeting like-minded people who are experiencing the same thing you are. Stir is a place where being a single parent is your strength. Stir is where you can relax and be yourself. And Stir is where you don't have to apologize for having a hectic schedule. Your kids go to bed at eight and you don't have to. Stir is the app designed for parents who just happen to be single. So give this a try because I know how important it is to make connections and feel seen and taken care of and having fun and flirting and remembering that it's nice to kind of get dressed once in a while. Download Stir or tell your single friends to just try it out. Get out there and date. By the way, it even has a unique feature, Stir Time, which helps coordinate your busy schedules up front, which streamlines scheduling a date. It's free to join and free to connect with others. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is with Gabor Matei. Dr. Matei is a physician and author. He has a background in family medicine with a focus on child development, trauma, and the impact of early experiences on lifelong physical and mental health. He's authored five books exploring topics such as ADHD, stress, developmental psychology, and addiction. I wanted to have a conversation with Gabor today about his new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. He co-authored it with his son, Daniel. It was so special to get to talk to him. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to write a little review, give it a five-star rating, DM me any of your questions on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast, and I will try to answer them either on Instagram, on the podcast, or on my Substack newsletter, drlisapressman.substack.com. And if you are interested in checking out some more targeted, shorter, bite-sized episodes, please go to Apple Podcasts and join me for my premium podcast 
I've got three seasons so far. Season one is on discipline. Season two is all about resilience and currently doing season three, an introduction to mindfulness for busy parents. I want to get started with defining normal. Yeah. So there's two definitions of normal. One is in the strict medical physiological sense, where outside a normal range of parameters, we can't live. You know, we can't live with too high or too low a temperature or blood pressure or blood acidity. In that case, what is normal aligns with what is natural and what is healthy. But in the social sense, when we talk about normal, we just think whatever we used to, whatever is, is usual. And we still assume that what is usual and natural and healthy, but it isn't. What is usual and accepted and commonplace in our culture is actually neither natural nor healthy. When it comes to child raising, when it comes to child delivery, when it comes to the care of pregnant women, when it comes to the education that kids get, how we treat them, how we discipline them, quote unquote, how we program them how we, the, the, the social media we expose them to, then the jobs we go to, the relationships we have, the values that we hold, very often they're neither healthy nor natural, but they're quite normal because it's what we used to. So there's the, the dichotomy and we confuse natural and healthy with normality and we don't see how toxic normality actually is. And what about the messages and distinguishing atypical and normal when we use language with children, especially and parents who are worried that their children aren't normal yeah. in quotes. So in this society, we have a very utilitarian view of children and, and child raising is that we want kids to be a certain way. And when they're not that way, we call them abnormal. And we even pathologize behaviors. Whereas what's actually happening is very normal in the sense of it's very natural. So I'll give you an example. There's this diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder, which I'll assert not only doesn't exist, it, even in theory it can't exist. Why we're diagnosing kids with it. Now, here's what I mean. If you had a cold, would it make any difference to the cold whether you and I were talking or not? Or if my foot was broken, would it be any less broken because you and I are talking or not talking? Mm. No. The disorder is in my foot or in your, in your immune system. Whether I'm here online with you makes no difference to my broken foot or to your cold. But could we oppose each other if we weren't in relationship with each other? Oppositionality, by definition, is relational. Mm -hmm. To oppose somebody, you have to be in some relationship with them. Well, if that's the case, why are we diagnosing the kid? Why are we saying that the kid is abnormal? The kid has all kinds of reasons to be oppositional. Maybe he has not been well treated by adults. Maybe he's been too connected to the peer group and he's lost the respect for adult values. In that, maybe he's been pushed on too much by adults and he's pushing back. In that context, oppositionality is very normal. But we're diagnosing the kid with a disorder. It's in the DSM. It's a disease. It's only a matter of time that shifts, I imagine, for, for a lot of the what we're calling abnormal. But I wonder, no. is it adaptive? It's adaptive. It's almost like we're misunderstanding adaptive and it, it, it using adaptive. it with normal. It, it, it is adaptive. Kids, when you push on a human being, they're going to push back automatically, which is adaptive. It's self-preservative. No, 
the problem is that these adaptive traits we take on early, they create problems for us later on. I can tell you about myself. In my first book, it's called Scattered Minds. It's on ADHD and it was first published 24 years ago. And the medical mantra is that here's this brain disease, ADHD. Well, the hell I said to myself, as a Jewish infant under the Nazis with a stressed and terrorized mother, I had lots of reasons to tune out, to scatter my attention, to get away from the stress. That's adaptive. So beautifully and, adaptive. Yeah, and, and, and so that because the stress was too much. Now, when is this happening? When my brain is developing. So that tuning out kind of gets programmed into my brain. But it wasn't a disease. It was an adaptive mechanism to prevent me from the stress. Why are so many kids being diagnosed these days? Because the parenting environment has become so stressed. A lot of sensitive kids are from an early age on tuning out not to have to confront the stress or at least to feel it directly. So it is adaptive. And rather than seeing it as abnormality, how about if we saw it as a normal response to abnormal circumstances? And rather than trying to fix the kid, we fix the environment. I think you do a beautiful job of this. If you can talk about how we can shift that lens without then going back to parent blaming and shaming. Here's the thing. Parenting styles and pain is passed on from one generation to the next. So when I was a parent, a young parent, I should say, I wasn't aware of my own traumas and my own dynamics and what was driving me. I'll give you an example. So I talked about my infancy under the Nazis in Hungary and the message I very much got from the world through my mother's unhappiness and the fact that she had to give me to some strangers for a while. The message I got is I wasn't wanted. I mean, that's not what was the case, but how, do, how else does an infant interpret the mother giving you to a stranger? So I get the sense that I'm not worthy. I've said this often. Well, if you don't think you're worthy and if you wanted, go to medical school because now they're going to want you all the time. <laughs> from the moment you from the moment that they're being born to the moment that they're dying, they're going to want you all the time which gives you a terrific sense of being wanted and of importance. So that's me as a young doctor, which means I'm a workaholic, which means I'm not around for my kids. So what, get, what message do they get? Same one I got. Now, am I to be blamed? I wasn't even conscious of it. I didn't do it deliberately. I wasn't even aware. I knew nothing about child-rearing or child, children's needs or my own trauma. I was just acting them out. Who are you going to blame, Adam and Eve? <laughs> <laughs> but it's multi-generational. So there's no parent blaming here. On the one hand, we have to understand, really understand, that the first few years and the parenting environment is so important, shaping the child's personality, psychology, emotional life, connection to themselves, and the very physiology of their brain. That's just a fact. But that doesn't mean that we're blaming parents. We're saying parents in this culture have been disabled from giving their kids what they need. It's not an individual parent's fault. It's a whole cultural dilemma. Mm -hmm. There's no room for parent blaming. Every parent does their best. You know, I'm telling you something. Here in Canada, <clears throat> I work a lot with indigenous people. Now, indigenous population in Canada, 50% of the women in jail in this country are indigenous. They make up 5% of the population. The rates of alcoholism, drug abuse, Sexual abuse of children, violence against children, violence in the families, suicides is exponentially high in those communities because of what happened during colonialism and since then, because of the way they were tormented. For 100 years or more, Native children were abducted from their homes, 
and sent to these state-sanctioned, church-run residential schools where they were sexually, emotionally, and physically abused, where if they eavesdropped, they had a pin struck through their eardrums, where if they spoke their native language, they had a pin struck through their tongues. Now, these parents brought up in those schools, or by parents who brought up in those schools, were desperate to escape their pain, so they drank not to feel the pain of it all. Now they're passing on their trauma to their children. Before colonialism, they parented much better than we do today. Now, are we going to blame these people? Or are we going to say they're actually doing their best given their circumstances? So even parents who mistreat their kids, in my view, are doing their best. That is their best, given who they are, what they understand, how they feel about themselves, the wounds that they're carrying. They're doing their best. There's not the least room for parent blaming here. On the other hand, we want to wake parents up to their immense responsibility and their immense power and their capacity, their innate capacity to give their children what the children need, but they need some guidance. So it's not a question of blaming, but it is a question of challenging parents with the information and saying, look, can you take responsibility for healing your own wounds so you don't pass it on to your kids, for understanding your children's need to be attuned with rather than to be just corrected all the time? I mean, it's a fine line, I know, but in my books, literally in my books, there's no room for parent blaming. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor. Mealtime is not super easy these days. Busy schedules, so many decisions to make, grocery shopping. Imagine if you could remove all that and still home make meals. No lines, no hassle just great tasting meals that you can whip up and enjoy in the comfort of your home. And with the cost of groceries going up, now is the perfect time to get started with HelloFresh. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. And HelloFresh makes it easy to eat what you love because you can customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides or even adding proteins to a veggie dish. And now you can even upgrade for organic chicken, or organic ground beef. HelloFresh understands that you're busy and that's why they take care of meal planning, they take care of meal prepping, and they free up extra time in your schedule with pre-portioned ingredients, foolproof recipes. That is something I certainly can appreciate and it's convenient. It directly delivers to your doorstep. Go to hellofresh.com slash human60 and use the code human60 for 60% off plus free shipping, hellofresh.com slash humans with the promo code humans60. This is going to make your life so much easier. Just give it a try. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. And If today's episode isn't a big reminder, therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we're having the reactions that we have, and it really helps to talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. So I'm a developmental psychologist, so I think it's clear how I feel about therapy. It's important and it can change your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, 
which we have now learned is efficacious, supportive, really designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, if it's not a good fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash humans. Betterhelp.com slash humans today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash humans. Betterhelp.com slash humans. We can't control anybody but ourselves. We can't control the systems. We can't control anything but our own responses to our kids. So once you think about it this way, it helps you feel like I have some control in this wild West. And unfortunately, almost for the first time in history, Parents have to fight against their culture to raise healthy kids. I mean, just this culture, and I'm holding up my cell phone here, it's toxic to kids. I mean, we know from brain scans that it damages kids' brain circuits to be on screen. So now the parents have to fight against the culture. The parents have to fight against the million commercials that a kid sees every day that says that you'll be happy if you eat this product. You'll be popular if you wear this pair of shoes. I mean... In other words, your value depends on externals. This culture is giving kids the wrong message. And parents have to almost disassociate from the culture in a healthy way to protect their kids. They have to put a boundary between the kids and the culture to protect them from all the poisonous propaganda that is directed against them. I want to address something that you said before about becoming a physician, because It made me think there's something that I often wonder if I'm being too hard on my ancestors. So I'm going to check. I'm running it by you after you said that, because I just personally feel so seen. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Mm. So my father and uncle and aunt, I think there's like a, there's just wild stuff to watch from my perspective. But what I noticed, my father's a scientist my uncle's a physician. Mm. My aunt was a woman, is a woman. So just wasn't the same thing. And when they are speaking to their friends, now my grandfather's still alive, but most of their friends are not. And my grandmother's not alive, but all through growing up, there was so much talk about how the, the splendor of the accomplishment, like my child, my son is a doctor. My Mm. granddaughter is getting her PhD. Like it wasn't like how are how when someone says how is she doing, she's yeah. getting her doctorate. Have you heard the Jewish definition of when life begins? No. It's when the first son gets accepted into medical school. <laughs> That's exactly so. I'm not imagining this because I really was like, even when I heard this beautiful interview with a Holocaust survivor, and she was talking about her daughters and the healing and the relationships and all that. The first thing that she said when she described them is, and now look at them, they're, they're, one is a psychologist, one is in graduate school. And so yeah. it's like, it's still the first value that comes across. And it never occurred to me to yeah. look at it, not just in the, from the perspective of like the, the Jewish grit, you know, the, the pressure of, of doing these things, but actually from the perspective of the child of the survivor to say, I matter. 
I matter mm-hmm. and people are going to need me and I'm going to just keep being indispensable. Yeah. That's incredible. But I think it's like the, of course, the, the explanation that I connect with most and understand most from you, but it can be translated in so many different ways to help us kind of reevaluate and assess how we come to be who we are so that we don't go down that same road with our children. Well, do you have children? I have two daughters, yeah. Wonderful. So if I asked you how one of them was doing, and if, if you came from your heart, would you tell me what kind of grades they're getting in school, or what would you tell me? Well, it's a little trickier with me because I I bend in a, in a specific direction, so I would tell you about how they're feeling in their heart more, as long as I wasn't... Which is what matters. Which is what matters. Because let me tell you, proof from personal experience and have interacted with a lot of successful people, you know, with all kinds of degrees or achievements, or you're in LA and, you know, the scene there, you know, the very, success, the very successful people who get all the accolades and the glitter, just how miserable they can be, you know. Yeah. But, 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 but this society values achievements and external evaluation above internal experience. So that's the first point. The second point is, in terms of my becoming a physician, you know, there was a lot of pain in my early environment in my mother. And I also am pretty convinced that some of my desire to heal the world came out of my desperation to heal my mother, who had lost her parents in Auschwitz and all this, you know. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't good sort of healthy reasons to become a physician. Wanting to help humanity, having an interest in the human body, physiology, psychology, those are, you know, liking people, you know, wanting a secure profession. These are all perfectly valid, good reasons. Mm-hmm. The problem is that to the extent that there's these unconscious reasons of wanting to be important and validate my existence or a desperation to heal the world because I, my mother was in so much pain, mm-hmm. as long as those are driving you or partially driving you, they can undermine your health and your emotional balance and eventually even your professional capacities. You know, so it's not a question of um, making anything wrong given your background or my background. It makes perfect sense why we went the direction we went in. Mm-hmm. But to become conscious of what is not conscious, then you won't be driven by it, you know. And not being driven is a state that a lot of people don't get to. When it comes to medicine, for example, it can be a calling or it can be a drive. Now, if, it's, if, it's, if you're being driven, you're like a leaf in the wind. You have no regulation, no control. You're just being driven. If yeah. it's a calling, then you can respond to the call or not respond to the call as you may choose. But there's freedom in it. I like that. So it's freedom that we're talking about here. Think about all the accomplishments that are born out of trauma. Yeah. And how much we cling to those, like, look at how many Nobel Prize winners and look at all the work that you think about the work that you do. And then, and I just wonder this, and this is much more philosophical and not scientific and definitely not what I meant to have as our conversation today. (laughs) But I I get torn because I think, well, would you be here having contributed all that you have to support everyone else? Even if it required all that pain and even if you had to, you know, get to the place of being conscious 
so that you could then shift your work into something that could have a different conversation. How does that, I don't know. I think about that all the time and I just so wonder, and I wonder what you think of it. I think of it too. And um, first of all, I'll never know because I can't do it over again with a different state of mind, you know? (laughs) Number one, if you broaden the question and if you ask me, okay, Gabor, you can have all these books published in 30 languages and all the gratitude you get in the world and all the genuine contributions you've made, or you, be a, or you can be a young parent, really connected to yourself and attuned with your children and happy with the woman that you're with, that you really loved and love, but there was so much conflict because of unresolved trauma, and maybe not have all these achievements. That's the question. No, I don't get to answer it. I don't get to, any answer I give is theoretical, you know, right. because I'm rather split about it, you know, but I don't know that necessarily I'd have to go through all this stuff in order to, and if I did, this is what happened. And I'm certainly grateful for what I've learned. I'm grateful for what I've been able to achieve. Mm-hmm. I'm not complaining in any way at all, but if I put it in the context of my whole life and my family, I'm not so sure that I would choose to have done it this way. I do periodically just have that question like, well, would you be able to serve yourself and the world in this kind of way, or even think as deeply as you've uncovered all of this later in life? Maybe it was not when you were a young parent, but maybe you had access or a I don't know. We'll never, I guess we won't know. And I certainly, we, nobody wishes upon children to experience those yeah. kinds of early events. Yeah. yeah. Well, so speaking of trauma, I yeah. feel like this is thrown around so much and it then becomes a worry. Am I traumatizing someone? Am I traumatized? And yeah. I wonder if you could help us understand what is trauma? Sure. So sometimes my colleagues call me out for speaking about trauma too broadly, you know, and it's fine. It's just a word. It's a question of what we mean by it, you know? So mm-hmm. on the one hand, it is used too promiscuously. Like people say, you know, I went to this movie last night and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You just were upset, right. you know, or, or my girlfriend stood me up last night and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You were disappointed, you know? But on the other hand, you work with medical doctors and they know nothing about trauma. So so that in the where it matters, we don't talk about it enough. In the courts, in education, in the medical system, it's a largely missing concept, even though it's the underlying dynamic, why so many people end up in jail, or why so many kids are having trouble in school, or why people end up in doctor's offices, whether with autoimmune disease or mental illness or whatever you have, whatever you have. So what is trauma then? So this is just my definition, you know, and, and so when I, the only reason to state it is that when I say it, you'll understand what I mean by that word. It's sort of like God, you know, when you say God and I say God, you might have totally different ideas or emotions in mind, yes. you know? When you're speaking of trauma, tell me what you mean. Yeah, so I mean a wound, which is the meaning of the word. It stems from a Greek word meaning wound. So trauma is a psychological wound that hasn't healed. And uh, to the extent that it hasn't healed, it limits, constricts, governs, drives, distorts your perceptions of the world, how you feel about yourself, how you interact with other people, the habits you have, the decisions you make. It's like Carl Jung said something about 
until the unconscious become conscious, you think it's fate. And, and you don't realize that so many of our decisions and, and, and reactions and interactions stem out of protections against wounds. So it's a wound that hasn't healed. And to, the, to that degree, if it's touched, it hurts. And that's when you're quote unquote triggered, you know? So there's a wound there. Or like wounds develop scar tissue. Scar tissue is hard and thick. It doesn't have nerve endings in it, so it doesn't feel. It, it's not flexible. It's very rigid and it doesn't grow. So traumatized people tend to be on the one hand oversensitive to certain triggers, you might say. And on the other hand, emotionally, they tend not to feel their emotions authentically. They tend to be rigid in their responses. They tend to be not have not be flexible when things happen. They tend to react in certain stereotypical ways. I'm talking about myself now. You know, not anymore so much, but it can still show up sometimes, you know. So those are the aspects of trauma. And so trauma gives you a shame-based view of yourself. So fundamentally, you don't, you believe there's something wrong with you, which can show up in two ways. It can show up as excessive self-guilt and self-judgment or as grandiosity, where you actually believe there's nothing wrong with you and you can do whatever you want in the world, and then you become president of the United States. And uh, so, 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 that, so that trauma can show up that way, or it can show up as a distorted view of the world, but that, that, that there's no safety in the world, I'm totally alone, mm-hmm. I can't trust relationships, or I don't know who to trust because my capacity to be in touch with my authentic gut feelings has been diminished so that I don't know, I don't sense danger when there's danger, or I sense danger where there isn't any. So that makes the relationships really difficult. And finally, I just say, then it can show up in physical illness, which is a whole other subject, autoimmune disease, malignancy, or in addictions, or in depression. In other words, it's, you know, trauma is a huge subject that, that the average physician doesn't get a single lecture about, despite all the science. I really am fascinated by how you talk about addiction. Yeah. So to use trauma as an example here and talk about addiction. Yeah. Can you kind of deepen that? Because I know parents have a lot of fear of laying the groundwork to prevent addiction yeah, and, and like buying into relationships being so critical, but then what if, or, or how, how do we understand laying the groundwork for this? Okay. And what if you are laying that groundwork and there's other factors at play? Okay. Great questions. So first of all, just to say, for 12 years, I worked in North America's most concentrated area of drug use, which is the downtown east side of Vancouver. My patients all had HIV and hepatitis C and not all of them, you know, mental illnesses and severe drug use. And I was the physician at North America's first supervised injection site. So these are hardcore addicted people. Now, I'll tell you something about them in a moment. But first of all, let me give you a definition of an addiction. Alisa, and then ask you a question. So an addiction, by the way, addiction comes from a Latin word for slavery. Okay, So an addiction is manifested in any behavior which a person finds temporary pleasure or relief and therefore craves, but then suffers negative consequences as a result and cannot give up despite negative consequences. So craving, pleasure, relief in the short term, harm in the long term, inability to resist, that's when addiction is, and I said any behavior, I didn't say drugs. It includes mm-hmm. drugs, the illegal ones like cocaine and heroin, 
It also includes the legal ones like cigarettes and alcohol or caffeine for that matter. It also includes sex, pornography, gambling, shopping, eating, work, relationships, the internet, any number of behaviors. Now, here's my question to you, if you're prepared for it. By that definition, have you ever had an addictive pattern in your life, ever? Yes. Okay. I'm not going to ask you what it was or when it was. I don't care. I'm only going to ask you this. What did it do for you? What did you like about it? Now, what was wrong with it? What was right about it? What did it give you temporarily that you wanted? Whatever. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. Whatever okay. it is. But but, but I've just, but, but, by you, what, what you're saying in an area that up until you said it, even though I've read your work, I wouldn't have said that that filled that category. The way you just described it, I'm like, I for sure, for sure. Okay. So pleasure. Now, here's a question. Here you're born on God's green earth with all these amazing everything available to you and your innate infantile capacity for pleasure. What was missing for you that you needed to engage in that kind of behavior to get pleasure? Mm-hmm. What was missing for you? And what was your state when you didn't have pleasure? What was your mental, emotional state when you didn't have pleasure? Mm-hmm. In other words, the addiction wasn't your problem. The addiction was your attempt to solve a problem of alienation from yourself. So again, there is something that goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about normal. There is something adaptive about the addiction. Absolutely. It's just not serving you. Yeah. But to go back to the downtown east side, in my 12 years of work down there, I had not a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. And all the men had been to terrible trauma. That's why they were living in the streets in the downtown city inside of Vancouver. In other words, mm-hmm. the, the addiction just served to soothe their pain. And that's my mantra. Don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Mm. Now, if you want to ask why the pain, you have to look at that person's life and what wounds people. In other words, there was woundedness underneath the addictive drive. So the addiction wasn't the disease that came along that they inherited. It was a reaction to life pain. No. There's woundedness on many different scales. You know, some people have horrible things happen to them. But sensitive children can be wounded not because horrible things happen necessarily, but because the good things that should happen don't happen. So if you take a baby, a baby's born with certain needs and expectations. One of them is unconditional loving acceptance, which is we love you and accept you, whether you're pretty or cute or compliant or, you know, just welcome you because you're here for God's sakes you know and we see you and we hear you and we allow you to have all your emotions and we accept all your emotions we don't demand that you be other than who you are now young children especially sensitive young children you don't have to do bad things to them like hurt them sexually abuse them just don't give them what they need they're going to be wounded it's that woundedness that drives the addiction so if parents want to prevent addiction in their children it's not about propaganda about how bad drugs are. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that propaganda. The only problem is the kids who listen don't need it, and the kids who need it don't listen. Yeah. Because they're, they're disconnected from the adult world. So the prevention of addiction is connection with the child. I think you also said something really important that might get lost in, in this. So I just, you, you keep referencing the sensitive child. This, yeah. And I think that that is worth 
taking some time on because it may be that for some kids who don't respond as sensitively, their biology just isn't as sensitive. What would be a wound for one is not a wound for another. And it's exactly. not because one is has a better personality than the other. They just have a nervous system that's different. Can you speak some to that children, a bit? Some children are genetically more sensitive. So let me give you a rather fascinating example study. Either Australia or New Zealand looked at aggression across the population. And they found that the people that were the most violent and the least aggressive, they shared the same gene. In other words, and then the people in the middle, they didn't. So there was a gene that predicted aggression, but either less aggressive or more aggressive. So what could it have gene have been for? Not for aggression, because if it was for aggression, everybody right. with the gene would have been aggressive. Not for peacefulness, because if it had been that, everybody would have been peaceful. No, sensitivity. I mean, you looked at mm. the childhoods, the more aggressive ones had difficult, dysfunctional homes. Now, that means that those kids were more affected. So if you tap yourself on the shoulder right now, you're going to feel no pain. But if you imagine that your shoulder is barely, and there's a wound there, but the nerve endings mm -hmm. are close to the surface, which we call being thin-skinned, and then if you mm -hmm. tap yourself with the same force, now you have severe pain. So the external event is the same. The internal experience is completely different based on sensitivity. And about 20% of people are more sensitive. These are the people that end up being very creative and very spontaneous. Yes. And they also end up more likely to have mental illness and addictions and so on because of the same Those are the orchids? Those are the orchids, yeah. And uh, Tom Boyce is a pediatrician, pediatric psychiatrist. He coins the word orchids and dandelions, you know. And yeah. it's, a very, it's, it's a really good way, good lens through which to to look at the children. And it's such you know? an important distinction to understand that. And yeah. the explanation that you gave of the skin, like the tap on the shoulder feeling so differently yeah. if you have like a raw, you know, yeah. thin skin, as you said, that that you just would be more thoughtful. You might say for this shoulder, I will tap more gently. I'm just going to be aware of it. Yes, absolutely. And it's very difficult for parents. Like, because they might have two kids. And they mm -hmm. think they're being the same parent to both those kids. And they love them the same and they have the same rules and so on. But those kids are having totally different experiences because of how they interpret the environment and how they respond to it. So this is where the importance of attunement, really connecting with the kid on the deepest level, which is difficult for most parents because they never, never attuned with their children. I was not attuned with my kids when they were small. Nobody attuned with me when I was small. You know? Do you remember when that shifted and how you shifted that? <laughs> my kids would tell me, tell you that I still haven't shifted it, but that's another story. Well, actually, I have quite a bit. But look, over time, over therapy, over all the work I've done with others, over all the, everything I've been involved with, you know, and certainly when my capacity to do it too and really does show up best is when I'm actually therapeutically working with somebody, I, I can be astonishingly present you know, and connected to what's happening for them. So that I read and I see and I reflect everything, you know, when I'm at my best, which is not always. In my personal life, it's still a challenge, as my wife will tell you, you know. For me to be attuned with her and not come from my own perceptions and interpretations, but to really see where she's at and what her experience is, it's a challenge. What are the qualities that you pull when you're sitting across from someone therapeutically that is hard, that, that you 
sort of noticed early on? And how did you, did you come home and notice that you couldn't pull that out? It's, I think the most important quality is in all human relationships actually is presence. To actually just be there openly without an agenda. Now, how many times do we interact with each other without an agenda? You know, when I don't, I'm not trying to impress you or convince you or, or recruit you or seduce you or, or, or get some valuation from you, you yeah. know, and just presence, you know. For most of us, that's very difficult to get to, at least speaking for myself. But, in a, you know, <clears throat> there's a joke I read in a book the other day. It said, uh, how do you regulate a therapist? You put a patient in front of them. And that tends to bring out some of our best qualities, you know, in in personal life, it's a bit more of a challenge. Well, I wonder, I mean, it makes, it makes sense because it's more vulnerable for you to be completely present with no agenda in your, you know, in your intimate relationships. Exactly. It has to do with vulnerability. You're quite right. And, and And our fear of vulnerability, which again, if you look at word origins, Vulnerare means to wound in Latin. And vulnerability is our capacity to be wounded. And the fact is that human beings are vulnerable from the moment they're conceived to the moment they die. But in this society, we're programmed to deny and escape from our vulnerability. And that creates so so terrifying. It's so terrifying, yeah. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.